Good morning. My name is Gokan Nas. You are listening to my podcast for my final project for the family nursing class at the University of Saskatchewan College of Nursing, recorded on Wednesday, June 10, 2020 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Before I begin, here's my quick disclaimer. The following podcast is my thoughts, reflections, feelings, and personal experiences about my learning journey and personal growth during the two weeks of family nursing class at the University of Saskatchewan taught by Dr. Rosalind Compton. The topics and ideas presented may not be based on peer-reviewed evidence-based research as they are mostly my reflections and experiences. The family nursing theories, assessments, and interventions that I mentioned during my podcast are mainly from the textbook, Nurses and Families, A Guide to Family Assessment and Intervention, 6th edition, written by Lorraine Wright and Maureen Leahy, published by F.A. Davis Company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The literature I mentioned during the podcast are listed in the references. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's dive into the family nursing practice and why it matters to assess the family and the individual at the same time in a clinical setting. What benefits could be gained by integrating the family into the patient-centered care? Well, I wish I could draw a picture or write a powerful poem to talk about my learning experience, but unfortunately, that's not how my brain works. I rely on my personal experiences and the way I implement my knowledge in my day-to-day life. So I'll be talking about my reflections and how I would be utilizing family nursing skills to provide holistic care for individuals and families. On the first day of the online lecture, Dr. Compton stated that care begins with the person not by illness or diagnosis. I think this statement by itself says that there should be more to care than what we usually provide. But is that often the case? In a fast-paced clinical setting, we do not get to spend enough time with the patients, yet alone with their families. It feels like we're always in a time crunch to move to the next task, next patient, next assignment at hand. And when it comes to the treatment, we seem to be focusing on symptom management. I call this treating what we see and ignoring what we don't understand. Probably it is, it's a more comfortable and more convenient way. I think our brain is wired that way. If a patient presents with chronic hypertension, the first thing we would think is prescribing diuretics and move on to the next patient. How often do we think about the other risk factors that an individual might have in their lives? Family nursing assessment introduced by Wright and Lihe brought up this new perspective which shows that there is more to assessment than meets the eye, which makes perfect sense because numerous studies have provided empirical evidence of family stress as a critical clinical variable. But where are we when it comes to the skill set that we should have to be able to intervene professionally? Literature shows that few nurses have the required intervention skills for a more family-centered approach to care. In fact, a study of family care in adult critical care settings across the United States revealed that when nurses were unable to manage family stress, they responded either by distancing themselves from the patient and the family or physically distancing families from the patient, which is the totally opposite of what we've been learning for the last couple of weeks. So we established that family assessment is essential and critical. Let's try to reiterate the applicability of the assessment because that's how I learn. I'm a pragmatic person. I need to see the practical perspective and applicability of whatever it is I'm learning. If I can't see the applicability of the theory, then it's not gonna register for me. 
I work at the Regional Psychiatric Center as a clinical care aide, and I have regular interaction with mental health patients. Since I started learning more about family assessment and interventions, I started to integrate some of the family assessment questions into my daily conversation routine for some of my patients. As I mentioned, I'm a pragmatic person, and I needed to see if these theories work outside academia. It was interesting to note that the majority of the patients were willing to talk about their families openly and enthusiastically. They still see them as their primary support system, and their future release plans revolve around the families and the social support system they have. They had to readjust the family dynamics, family roles, and the structures when they were incarcerated. As we learned, families are dynamic and constantly changing, but they come to a balance within that change. Once a family establishes that new equilibrium, the relationship, dynamics, and structures are adjusted accordingly. For most of the patients that I talk to, their families, after going through that changes in their structure, dynamics, and defined roles, obviously, still continue to act as their major support network. They realize that their incarceration changed a lot in their family and caused stress not only for them and for the family members as well. Some of them mentioned that how wife had to take on more responsibilities to take care of the kids or how they sought support from outside the traditional family network that they always used to rely on. I could feel that any disruption to the family structure's new current balance might have devastating effects on them. I've seen some patients go into psychosis states after losing a family member outside or on the anniversary dates of catastrophic events. Fortunately, some patients don't have any family members outside the institution. What was interesting to note that when asked who their family is, they listed their friends in the same unit, or some of them see the staff as their family. That goes back to the idea of family as who they say they are, which also gave me a whole new perspective. I guess subconsciously I often linked family with blood connection. I'm realizing that's not always the case. For them, the idea of family was a support network that they were able to establish inside the institution, which made them get up every morning and still have hopes for the future that they have. I sincerely witnessed the therapeutic effect of family support and the social network. I also witnessed how the lack of it negatively affected patients' mood and behavior. Lately, restrictions due to COVID-19 has been a significant stressor for the patients, which is affecting the dynamics and relationships within the institution. When asked, I would say all of them complain about the new regulations that restricted the family visits and restricted patient-to-patient -patient interaction within the institution. Witnessing the therapeutic power of family support, I can see the benefits of integrating family assessment and interventions as part of health promotion and upstream care, especially in a community setting. Utilizing the family assessment and interventions and therapeutic effects of families and the support network would help us to identify the underlying causes of the illnesses rather than just the symptom treatments, which would allow us to provide an upstream care compared to a downstream approach. We might be able to reduce repeated hospitalization, investigate the determinants of disease, which might be social, lifestyle, or any other causes, and definitely reduce the workload for the downstream care. To summarize, in this short amount of time, 
family nursing theory class helped me to consider family as a complex, changing, and evolving system with its own dynamics affecting each family member individually and as a whole unit. Quite a number of health issues such as infections, smoking, domestic violence, addiction, and end-of-life which we also discuss in the class should be focused from a family perspective point of view to investigate the underlying causes of the diseases, risk factors, and identify the determinants of health. The opportunity that I had to integrate some of these concepts with the patients that I have been caring for have been significantly valuable for me, and the skills I learned will stay with me throughout the rest of my career, which I'm grateful for. I know that I will put extra effort to provide a holistic family-centered care in a fast-paced clinical environment where we are always crunched for time, but the skills and the theory will always be there for me to remember and to reflect on. Imagine being pregnant and living at least five hours walking distance from the nearest hospital. On top of that, imagine being 16 years old and losing two of your sisters to easily treatable diseases. You are starving as you walk to the nearest clinic and when you get there, you can't communicate with the nurse as she doesn't speak your language. And it feels like nobody cares about you. This story is not uncommon for a woman and children living in Niger. Niger is one of the world's poorest countries, ranking at the bottom of the UN Human Development Index. It has one of the highest fertility rates globally, with each woman delivering on average 7.6 children. It is combating with the 11th highest maternal mortality rate in the world at 820 deaths per 100,000 live births. The children's health is not promising either. Unfortunately, the country has the world's highest infant mortality rate. The child mortality rate between the ages of 1 and 4 is 248 per 1,000, mostly due to generally poor health conditions and inadequate nutrition. Child brides due to poverty, child pregnancy, lack of education, and inaccessibility of care for women from rural areas are the major contributors to poor maternal and infant health. Fulani people are one of the nomadic ethnic groups in the country who have poor access to health services, are prone to infectious diseases, and have higher maternal and childhood mortality rates. Due to their nomadic lifestyle, conventional health systems do not reach them. Unfortunately, health services are usually in the hands of settled populations who do not relate well to nomadic ethnic groups such as Fulani and Tuareg. On top of the geological barriers, settled populations tend to look down on nomadic people as uneducated and primitive caused by the gaping cultural divide. And sometimes language is a barrier as well. And for countries like Niger, providing healthcare in remote locations comes with prohibitive costs. So, in this day and age, the million dollar question is why we still have this massive gap in providing primary healthcare to vulnerable populations, causing them to suffer. If we critically analyze the issue, it goes back to the ages of colonialism. Formerly colonized nations are still suffering the effects of underdevelopment and underinvestment in health infrastructure. 
Prior to decolonization, Niger, like other colonial territories in French West Africa, was part of a federation-wide health system that had its origins in the early 20th century. The earliest health interventions in these colonies were intended to protect trade and ensure good health for only European colonizers. The establishment of World Health Organization in the continent faced its obstacles as a clash with colonial governments in Africa over questions of colonial politics. Colonial governments backed by the French governments have spent years trying to prevent the WHO from establishing a regional branch on the continent. As we attempt to locate the origins of Africa's current public health crisis in the continent's colonial past, it is important to notice the ways that European regimes actively underdeveloped these territories to safeguard colonial sovereignty. Unfortunately, the accessibility to healthcare for indigenous people in the whole continent is a systemic issue. So, what has been done so far? Millennium Development Goals introduced by the United Nations, although promising, has its shortcomings. They fall short in addressing the health disparities between indigenous peoples and other poor marginalized groups. United Nations report on indigenous peoples' access to health services suggests a few key strategies to address the health disparities within the region's indigenous and nomadic people to improve maternal and infant health in countries like Niger. The most important one is providing outreach clinics to reach remote areas. Cultural sensitivity and respecting the traditional knowledge that indigenous communities have relied on for thousands of years are critical, critical strategies when health services are utilized. As healthcare providers, we need to be able to come up with innovative healthcare delivery methods. One of these studies on nomadic people and their livestock revealed that the higher vaccination status in the animals than in children. After these results, authorities decided to conduct a joint campaign bringing together veterinarians and public health workers to promote immunization. Maternity shelters in the hospital compounds that allowed pregnant women to come and stay towards the end of their pregnancies are also another example of innovative healthcare delivery. Training and educating healthcare workers from indigenous communities will help bridge the cultural and language barrier between nomads and the settlers. It is also nurses and other healthcare providers' responsibility to advocate for development of responsive healthcare policies that incorporate multicultural health systems. Discrimination, domination, and marginalization have been violating indigenous peoples' human rights, threatens the continuation of their cultures and ways of life, and prevents them from genuinely participating in the decisions on their future. To improve the health situation of indigenous peoples in Niger and globally, there must be a fundamental shift in the concept of health so that it incorporates the cultures and worldviews of indigenous peoples as central to the design and management of the healthcare systems. Imagine being pregnant and living at least 5 hours walking distance from the nearest clinic. On top of that, imagine being 16 years old and losing two of your sisters to easily treatable diseases. You are starving as you walk to the nearest clinic, 
And when you get there, you can't communicate with the nurse as she doesn't speak your language. And it feels like nobody cares about you. This story, unfortunately, is not uncommon for women and children living in Niger. Niger is one of the world's poorest countries, ranking at the bottom of the UN Human Development Index. It has one of the highest fertility rates globally, with each woman delivering on average 7.6 children. It is combating with the 11th highest maternal, maternal mortality rate in the world at 820 deaths per 100,000 live births. The children's health is not promising either. Unfortunately, the country has the world's highest infant mortality rate. The child mortality rate between the ages of 1 and 4 is 248 per 1,000, mostly due to generally poor health conditions. Child brides due to poverty, child pregnancy, lack of education, and inaccessibility of care for women from rural, rural areas are the major contributors to poor maternal and infant health. Fulani people are one of the nomadic ethnic groups in the country who have poor access to health services, are prone to infectious diseases, and have higher maternal and childhood mortality rates. Due to their nomadic lifestyle, conventional health systems do not reach them. Unfortunately, health services are usually in the hands of settled populations who do not relate well to nomadic ethnic groups such as Fulani and Tuareg. Furthermore, settled populations tend to look down on nomadic people as uneducated and primitive caused by the cultural divide. Sometimes language is a barrier as well. And for countries like Niger, providing healthcare in remote locations comes with prohibitive costs. So, in this day and age, the million dollar question is why we still have this massive gap in providing primary healthcare to vulnerable populations, causing them to suffer. If we critically analyze the issue, it goes back to the ages of colonialism. Formerly colonized nations are still suffering the effects of underdevelopment and underinvestment in health infrastructure. Prior to decolonization, Niger, like other colonial territories in French West Africa, was part of a federation-wide health system. The earliest health interventions in these colonies were intended to protect trade and provide health care for European colonizers. The establishment of the World Health Organization in the continent faced its obstacles as it clashed with colonial governments backed by the French governments that had spent years trying to prevent the WHO from establishing a regional branch on the continent. As we attempt to locate the origins of Africa's current public health crisis in the continent's colonial past, it is important to notice the ways that European re regimes actively underdeveloped these territories to safeguard colonial sovereignty. Unfortunately, the access accessibility to healthcare for indigenous people in the whole continent is a systemic issue. So, what has been done so far? Millennium Development Goals introduced by the United Nations, although promising, has its shortcomings. They fall short in addressing the health disparities between indigenous peoples and other marginalized groups. United Nations report on indigenous peoples' access to health services suggests a few key strategies to address the health disparities within the region's indigenous and nomadic people to improve maternal and infant health. The most important one is providing outreach clinics to reach remote areas. 
cultural sensitivity and respecting the traditional knowledge that indigenous communities have relied on for thousands of years are critical strategies when health services are utilized. As healthcare providers, we need to be able to come up with innovative healthcare delivery methods. One of the studies on nomadic people and their livestock revealed the higher vaccination status in the animals than in children. After these results, authorities decided to conduct a joint campaign bringing together veterinarians and public health workers. Maternity shelters in the hospital compounds that allowed pregnant women to come and stay towards the end of their pregnancies are also another example of innovative healthcare delivery. Training and educating healthcare workers from indigenous communities would help bridge the cultural and language barrier between the nomads and the settlers. It is also nurses and other healthcare providers' responsibility to advocate for the development of responsive healthcare policies that incorporate multicultural health systems. Discrimination, domination, and marginalization have been violating indigenous peoples' human rights, threatens the continuation of their cultures and ways of life, and prevents them from genuinely participating in decisions on their future. To improve the health situation of indigenous peoples in Niger and globally, there must be a fundamental shift in the concept of health so that it incorporates the cultures and the worldviews of indigenous peoples as central to the design and management of the healthcare systems. Imagine being pregnant and living at least five hours walking distance from the nearest clinic. On top of that, imagine being 16 years old and losing two of your sisters to easily treatable diseases. You're starving as you walk to the clinic and when you get there, you can't communicate with the nurse as she doesn't speak your language and it feels like nobody cares about you. This story is not uncommon for women and children living in Niger. Niger is one of the world's poorest countries ranking at the bottom of the UN Human Development Index. It has one of the highest fertility rates globally, with each woman delivering on average 7.6 children. It is combating with the 11th highest maternal mortality rate in the world at 820 deaths per 100,000 live births. The children's health is not promising either. Unfortunately, the country has the world's highest infant mortality rate. And the child mortality rate between the ages of 1 and 4 is 248 per 1,000, mostly due to generally poor health conditions. Child brides due to poverty, teenage pregnancy, lack of education, and inaccessibility of care for women from rural areas are the major contributors to poor maternal and infant health. Fulani people are one of the nomadic ethnic groups in the country who have poor access to health services, are prone to infectious diseases, and have higher maternal and child mortality rates. Due to their nomadic lifestyle, conventional health systems do not reach them. Health services are usually in the hands of settled populations who do not relate well to nomadic ethnic groups such as Fulani and Tuareg. Settled populations tend to look down on nomadic people as uneducated and primitive caused by the cultural divide. And sometimes language is a barrier as well. And for countries like Niger, providing healthcare in remote locations comes with prohibitive costs. So, in this day and age, the question is, 
why we still have this massive gap in providing primary health care to vulnerable populations, causing them to suffer. If we critically analyze the issue, it goes back to the ages of colonialism. Formerly colonized nations are still suffering the effects of underdevelopment and underinvestment in health infrastructure. Prior to decolonization, Niger, like other colonial territories in French West Africa, was part of a federation wild health system. The earliest health interventions in these colonies were intended to protect trade and provide health care for only European colonizers. The establishment of World Health Organization in the continent faced its obstacles as it clashed with colonial governments backed by the French government. It is important to notice the ways that European regimes actively underdeveloped these territories to safeguard colonial sovereignty, causing the current public health crisis in the continent. Unfortunately, the accessibility to healthcare for indigenous people in the whole continent is a systemic issue. So, what has been done so far? United Nations report on indigenous people's access to health services suggests a few key strategies to address the health disparities within the region's indigenous and nomadic people to improve maternal health. The most important one is providing outreach clinics to reach remote areas. Cultural sensitivity and respecting the traditional knowledge that the indigenous communities have relied on for thousands of years are critical strategies when health services are utilized. As healthcare providers, we need to be able to come up with innovative healthcare delivery methods. One of the studies on nomadic people and their livestock revealed the higher vaccination status in the animals than in children. After these results, authorities decided to conduct a joint campaign bringing together veterinarians and public health workers. Maternity shelters and hospital compounds that allowed pregnant women to come and stay towards the end of their pregnancies are also another example of innovative healthcare delivery. Training and educating healthcare workers from indigenous communities would help bridge the cultural and language barrier between the nomads and the settlers. It is also the nurses' responsibility to advocate for the development of responsive healthcare policies that incorporate multicultural systems. Discrimination, domination, and marginalization have been violating indigenous people's human rights, threatening the continuation of their cultures. To improve the maternal health of indigenous peoples in Niger, there must be a shift in the concept of health so that it incorporates the cultures of indigenous peoples as central to delivery of healthcare systems. Imagine being pregnant and living at least five hours walking distance from the nearest clinic. On top of that, Imagine being 16 years old and losing two of your sisters to easily treatable diseases. You're starving as you walk to the nearest clinic, and when you get there, you can't communicate with the nurse as she doesn't speak your language, and it feels like nobody cares about you. This story is not uncommon for women and children living in Niger. Niger is one of the world's poorest countries, ranking at the bottom of the UN Human Development Index. It is one of the highest fertility rates globally, with each woman delivering on average 7.6 children. It is combating with the 11th highest maternal mortality rate in the world at 820 deaths per 100,000 live births. Children's health is not promising either. 
Unfortunately, the country has the world's highest infant mortality rate. And the child mortality rate between the ages of 1 and 4 is 248 per 1,000, mostly due to generally poor health conditions. Child brides due to poverty, teenage pregnancy, lack of education, and inaccessibility of care for women from rural areas are the major contributors to poor maternal health. Fulani people are one of the nomadic ethnic groups in the country who have poor access to health services, are prone to infectious diseases, and have higher maternal and childhood mortality rates. Due to their nomadic lifestyle, conventional health systems do not reach them. Health services are usually in the hands of settled populations who do not relate well to nomadic ethnic groups such as Fulani and Tuareg. Settled populations tend to look down on nomadic people as uneducated and primitive caused by the cultural divide, and sometimes language is a barrier as well. And for countries like Niger, providing healthcare in remote locations comes with prohibitive costs. So. In this day and age, the question is why we still have this massive gap in providing primary health care to vulnerable populations, causing them to suffer. If we critically analyze the issue, it goes back to the ages of colonialism. Formerly colonized nations are still suffering the effects of underdevelopment and underinvestment in health infrastructure. Prior to decolonization, Niger, like other colonial territories in French West Africa was part of a federation-wide health system. The earliest health interventions in these colonies were intended to protect trade and provide health care for European colonizers only. Even the establishment of World Health Organization in the continent faced its obstacles as a clash with colonial governments backed by the French government. So it's really important to, to notice the ways that European regimes actively underdeveloped these territories to safeguard colonial sovereignty, causing the current public health crisis in the continent. Unfortunately, the accessibility to healthcare for indigenous people in the whole continent is a systemic issue. So what has been done so far? United Nations report on indigenous people's access to health services suggests that few key strategies to address the health disparities within the region's indigenous and nomadic people to improve maternal health. The most important one is providing outreach clinics to reach remote areas. Cultural sensitivity and respecting the traditional knowledge that the indigenous communities have relied on for thousands of years are critical strategies when health services are utilized. As healthcare providers, we need to be able to come up with innovative healthcare delivery methods. One of the studies on nomadic people and their livestock revealed the higher vaccination status in the animals than in children. After these results, authorities decided to conduct a joint campaign bringing together veterinarians and public health workers promoting immunization within children. Maternity shelters in the hospital compounds that allowed pregnant women to come and stay towards the end of their pregnancies are also another example of innovative healthcare delivery. Training and educating healthcare workers from indigenous communities would help bridge the cultural and language barrier between the nomads and the settlers. It is also the nurse's responsibility to advocate for the development of responsive healthcare policies that incorporate multicultural systems. Discrimination, 
domination and marginalization have been violating indigenous peoples' human rights threatens the continuation of their cultures. To improve the maternal health of indigenous peoples in Niger, there must be a shift in the concept of health so that it incorporates the cultures of indigenous peoples as central to delivery of healthcare system. Thank you.